Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Thank you. You may be seated. It's good to begin with the doxology, especially in this component of the uh, Truth in Life, because this is about theology proper. We're thinking about the nature of God, the character of God, and we're going to be spending eight weeks talking about God, His nature, His character, the Trinity. And so the doxology is a great, I think, an ancient expression of kind of a, like a creed of the church. And uh, it expresses our belief in the Trinity. I'm going to be teaching this kind of in a hybrid way because I have Bob's notes and Bob's, and I feel like to honor him, I want to use them, and yet it's his notes. And, and so I'm not quite sure how this is going to go, but you will be the guinea pigs, all right? And, uh, and so Bob began this by talking about the value I, the second reason that I'm uh, good to do this, I think, or did I say it the first, was that I went through it with Bob. And so I, I remember how he taught it. And uh, so uh, the, the first thing that, that we want to talk about is why do we study theology? You know that theology was at one time called the, the, the king of sciences. And we find that a very strange term, the, theology as a science. I, I used to think, what a weird way to speak of theology, even when I was a pastor, even for 10, 15 years as a pastor. More recently, I have realized that, no, God does make himself available to us when we inspect and study, and he does it in more ways than science can. So science can only look at the material things, but those material things reveal God. We learn about God through the material, but science stops generally with the material, and God in theology allows us to continue by his word and by his direct interaction with us to know him in a more powerful way than we can know anything on earth. So we'll never know the earth as well as we will be able to know God if we're his children. It's just a reality. If you're a child of someone, you know them better than you know outside things. And the earth is outside, but in, in the Christian's life, God is internal. He is our father. We are in him. The Holy Spirit is in us. And it really does, it does avail itself to study. It is a, it is a science. And so uh, why do we study theology? Well, there are a lot of ways to study theology. And Bob has put some of the books that we have used uh, up there. You see Charles Hodge. When I, was, when I was not really a Christian yet, but wondering about my life and my future. My dad, it was the year after I graduated from college, my dad said to me, David, and I know he wanted to do it, but I, I said no. He said, David, would you like to study Hodge's systematic theology with me? That's Hodge's systematic theology there. I've always regretted not doing that because my dad really wanted to speak to me about theology. He believed theology was essential. I was talking with my brother this past week about his father-in-law. And uh, his father-in-law was a well-known Christian leader. He's the man who started Tyndale House. And if you were alive back in the days of the early living Bible, he's the one who paraphrased it. And then he, is, he oversaw the production of the New Living Translation. But my, my sister-in-law's dad, who was a very dear friend, was in some ways a simple man. And later in life, he'd say things uh, all along. He'd say things like, I don't really believe God 
would put all the Canaanites to death. Certainly God didn't do that, despite the word of God saying it. Certainly God didn't intend for the Israelites to kill all the Canaanites in the land. And I was talking with my brother. We were talking as we were driving up north, Cheryl and I, on the phone. We had like a two-hour conversation. We were talking about our, our years growing up. And we were talking about how many of the people that were in the church that we grew up in, we really have confidence in today and their children knowing the Lord. And I, I said, what about, your, what about Mr. Taylor, Tim? You know, these thoughts he'd have, these things he'd say later in life. And he, Tim said to me, you know, David, I have no question, and I didn't really either, about Mr. Taylor and his faith in God. He said, but Mr. Taylor was atheological, which means he had no sense of theology at all. He didn't care for it. He didn't pay attention to it. He did love the Word of God, and he did obey the Word of God. But he had no sense of theology. And I, what we're trying to do in this series of courses is to to develop somewhat of a sense of theology that will guide us. Now, theology, uh, let me move on here. Theology is the study of God, and there have been famous theologians that we respect and admire. Charles Hodge would be an example of that. There are famous theologians who we don't follow, and Thomas Aquinas would be an example of that. Thomas Aquinas is, of course, the, the top theologian of the Roman Catholic Church. If if there is one theologian that the Roman Catholics follow just hook, line, and sinker, it's Thomas Aquinas, the guy on the left. He was, <clears throat> he was famous as, <laughs> as the, the chief of what is called the scholastic theologians. The scholastic theologians were a breed of theology that existed, well, it still exists today, but that was really prominent in the four or five hundred years leading up to Thomas Aquinas and maybe uh, 200 years afterward, these were theologians who took the tools primarily with Aquinas of Aristotle and said, we can understand God by using philosophy. And really it was a merger, and they believed it was a God-ordained merger between, between the, the knowledge of the word, you know, Aristotle talked about the logos, and he didn't mean what we mean by it or what the Bible means, but he'd talk about the word. Between, so between the scriptures and Aristotle, and Aquinas taught, now Aquinas taught many things that are true and good. And uh, for instance, Aquinas is rejected by the Roman Catholic Church in one particular area above all. And, and, and it, does, it will make sense to you when you, when you hear what that area is. Thomas Aquinas taught that man is predestined to eternal life, okay? The Catholic Church, come the Council of Trent, the reaction to the, the Protestant Reformation said, no, it is the one specific area where the Catholic Church rejects Thomas Aquinas, all right? Thomas Aquinas was, a, I think, a very good man, a holy man, but he was, he was heir of this tradition that said we can know God by using philosophy, and ultimately, philosophy, well, some years ago, Cheryl and I were in a, a Greek monastery, one of those monasteries in the Meteora region of Greece, high up on the Red Cliffs, built there because of the invasions, and they were safe up on, on top of these. So these cliff-top monasteries and these sort of, uh, these cliffs that rise, the rocks rise out of nowhere, and then it's all, it's sort of like that rock in Australia, the 
what's it called, the Standing Rock or something. It's like a, a single rock mountain, and they're on the top of them. And in this one really prominent monastery, there is a, a, a long plaque, and I've shown it in church here before, about the Greek philosophers and the heritage of Greece, of ancient Greece, and how God prepared the, word, the world for his son, Jesus, by having Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle teach about the word, and they were pre-evangelists to Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that really was the idea of, of Aquinas and others. And we would, we would have to reject that wholesale. Just say, that's nonsense. Jesus is not available, especially to philosophers. Okay? Some of the tools of philosophy may be helpful in understanding things in Scripture, but generally, we don't go that way. This is what Charles Hodge said. Theology is describing what the Bible says. Now, you say, why do we need theology when we have the Bible? And uh, Bob illustrated it like this. He says there's a natural setting, and you can see a beautiful natural setting with wildflowers. What are those? What are they? I know the name of those. What are those flowers? Lupine, yeah, lupine. And you can see the trees. And then there is the, the setting of a botanical garden, which takes all the flowers and arranges them by type and sets them out and displays them in, in a concentrated setting. Theology is, a, is a, our desire to take what Scripture teaches and, and to, in a sense, I don't know if it's fair to say reduce, but but to make precepts of it, to, to categorize it, to say this is what the Bible teaches about this subject, because the Bible is diffuse. And if you look across it, it's teaching things in lots of ways, in lots of passages. And you go to a, an Old Testament passage like Joseph with his brothers, which I read this morning coming in, and Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant it for bad, but God wanted to save you. Well, we read that and we understand it scripturally, but theologically we also understand that that's a principle, right? And what is that principle called? Can anyone? That God is working in all things for, our, for, for good. It's called providence, right? You know, that God is providing, that God is working all these things for our good. So we have... As Bob says, four types of theology, I, <clears throat> I think that's probably true. I'd say that most, some of these are, are a little more uh, common than others. Practical theology is to take all the foregoing and say, now this is how we practice it. My brother's being asked to teach on practical theology in Germany once he retires, and uh, he's going to go and do that. But generally, that's kind of looked down on in the seminary setting. Ah, you're doing practical theology. How do you make it hit the road? Um, I'm not sure practical theology is all that helpful. I think practical theology is just how we should live as pastors, how churches should. Uh, and so biblical theology is a well-known. It's describing what the Bible says in the setting of the Bible. And uh, so... Classic examples of biblical theologians would be 
Gerhardus Voss, other people like that. Historical theology looks back and says, this is how this developed. It's sort of tied to church history. Okay, and this is the development of something over the course of history. And, and it's a very helpful thing to do. We in the pastor's college spend a lot of time in historical theology because we're reading about the Council of Nicaea. And we're reading about the development of the thinking about the Trinity. And we're doing that because we want as pastors to be in this day teaching what was taught back then with relevance to our day. And so in this day, in the day of, uh, that we live in, feminism is such a force that the term patriarchy is seen as just evil. And yet if you read the Bible, it's very clear that patriarchy is God's way. And, and so what feminism has done and what those who support feminism have done, and I'm not sure this is a thing about women, this is as much about men as about women, all right? But it's, it's an attitude that says, I don't like authority. I will not have authority over me. And the, 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 the nub of it, the cutting edge of it in our day is, did Jesus submit to the Father? And, and so there are those who say, no, submission does not mean you don't have equality of essence. Submission is what one, one being renders another out of, out of respect, out of origin, out of all these things. And Jesus did that with the Father. Well, of course, what's being said is uh, by friends of ours are saying about, probably about me, but more so about other more prominent guys, that we're not, not Christians. They say, oh, you've gone back on Nicaea. Nicaea said there is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They have one essence. There is no subordination. Well, as we've studied and we read these ancient theologians from back in the era of Nicaea, which would be Athanasius, I've spoken about a number of these last summer, Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, Basil, uh, uh, Augustine, those primarily would be the guys. You realize that when they're talking, when they're attacking subordinationism, it's, it is the idea that was being taught that Jesus was not equal with the Father. It was called anomianism, okay, which, which means that Jesus was, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't mean anomian, I mean anhemoian, which means not of similar character, but below God. Well, that's not what's being taught today, and so you have to go back to historical theology to teach that. Systematic or dogmatic theology system is to develop a system that, uh, that seems to tie things together. So it would be a famous example of a systematic theologian. What, John Calvin. And, and what would be his systematic? The Institutes. The Institutes, all right. Anyone else know of a systematic that... Martin uh, uh, Luther? Eh. <laughs> Martin Luther had a, a guy who worked with him named Melanchthon who put together many of the things. But Martin Luther was not a... And one of the things you love about him is he was not systematic at all. He'd say one thing one day and the other, and the next day he'd say a very different thing. And he wouldn't see a contradiction in it. And a systematic theologian would say, no, you can't do that, all right? So Martin Luther was not really a systematician, who, but who might be? What? Grudem, today, Wayne Grudem. Thomas Aquinas, his Summa Theologica. Um, what's that? John Frame, yeah, that's the book that we gave all the teachers of this class to look through. We, 
We like John Frame. We have used him in the pastor's college. We still use him in the pastor's college. There are some ways that we, we prefer him to Wayne Grudem, although I think Wayne Grudem did a very good job, and he's a, an old friend, not a current friend. But um, so in, in certain ways, uh, systematic theology, though, is, as in all these, is somewhat dangerous because what I've, the, the analogy I've always used is that if you get a bad systematic theologian, they, they have a system that humanly is perfect. And it's very seductive, but it can lead you to pride and to rejecting what the Bible says. So I've often looked at systematic theologies, and in particular what we're going to talk about today, covenant theology, with a little grain of skepticism. All right? Uh, and the reason I have is that it is the way that the Reformed people make absolutely everything fit the plan that they like. You understand what I'm saying? And it, it ties it down so tightly that even God can't escape it. Uh, and I, I, I look at systematic theology, and I think it's like one of those, those collars you put on the dog, you know? You put, a, you put a leash on it, and you put one of those cones around its head so the dog can't do anything, right? And, and it's making the dog conform to your wishes, and I think systematic theology does tend at times to have that effect, to make the Bible say what we wish it said, rather than actually reflecting what the Bible says. All right? And so this is John Frame. This is his systematic. Here's another. Uh, he's really not a systematic theologian, though he wrote a lot of theology. Um, Charles Sproul, he's a popularizer of theology and a great popularizer. Um, and so this week... And this eight weeks, we're going to be talking about God, God of relationship. God and how he relates within the Trinity <coughs> and then to us. And what are the implications of that for us? God is a God who is a Trinity. He is three persons and one essence. It is a mystery. It is a matter of, it was a matter of debate. For nearly a thousand years in the church, and the fact that the debates have quieted down don't mean that there aren't there aren't theological issues involving the Trinity that are important today. I think the one that feminism poses is a, an, a, an absolutely brand new heresy. You read Augustine, and he says, "Who would ever think that you would that anyone who would imagine that anyone would attack the Father?" He says, all the attacks on the Trinity are on the Son or the Spirit, right? Because who could ever diminish God the Father? So Augustine says, who could imagine it? But we live in a day when it's not only imagined, where it is the primary attack. It's never happened before in 2,000 years of church history that the primary attack is on the fatherhood of God, on God the Father. But that's the day we live in, and so we need to be Trinitarian theologians. In the Trinity... There is a relationship, and defining that relationship and the character of it is essential. And, and we're going to come, come to that in, a, in weeks to come. But what I want to begin with is talking about how God relates to God <coughs> through a series of covenants. And, uh, whoops, that's not the way I want to go. 
The Lord makes covenants. In the beginning, God makes covenants. There are covenants throughout the Bible. In, uh, in the Old Testament, the term that is used for covenant is, does anyone know it? And it's one of those Hebrew words that sometimes people know. Berith, B-E-R-I-T-H is how you'd transliterate it. In the, berith. Um, God makes covenants. Can you name covenants that God has made? Can you think of any? We'll come to some. Can you think of covenants that God has made? Okay, Abrahamic, which was what? Well, okay, yeah, yeah, all right. And uh, what were you going to say? Ah, the Abrahamic. Does anyone know of another covenant? Noah. Noah, what was that covenant? He would never again, and that he would prosper. Okay, what, what, what else? Uh, can you think of any other covenants? You should be able to come with. David, right? And that covenant was what? Yeah, yeah, that he, is, that he would be king, and that from him would come one who would be. Who else can you think of uh, with a covenant? What else can you think of? Yes, Moses. Okay. Sorry. Moses, and what can you can you describe the essence of it? It's follow the law, and I will bless you. Right? Okay. Where else do you see covenant in the Bible? Sarah French, come on. I know you know this. This is the new what? Okay. Well, I will come back to that one. You would have to bring that up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I shouldn't have called on Sarah. She, <laughs> Bryce, where else is there? I'll come back to that, Sarah. Okay. All right. Bryce? Oh, man. Now my mind's stuck on Garden of Eden. Okay. Can you come up with another? That's a promise, but that would not be a covenant. Okay. And let me explain why in a little bit. Melissa, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? Okay, Gabe. Ah, okay. We'll, 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 we'll push through. Okay, the, the covenants of God in the Bible, the very first and most important one, and this is one that's assumed, it's not spoken of in Scripture, but in a sense it is, but it's not spoken of in terms of a covenant. The the, is called the Pactum Salutis. That's the Latin. In English, it's called the Covenant of Redemption. And the Covenant of Redemption is, is not found in the Bible in it, the description of it as a covenant. There are two covenants, the Covenant of Redemption and the Covenant of the Garden that Sarah mentioned that are not described as covenants, but that we, by looking at them, say, they seem to fit the description of a covenant. And so the Bible says that Jesus, when was he crucified for the sins of mankind? Before the foundation of the world. What does that indicate? That, that the, everything that required the sin, the, the, sin the, the creation of mankind, the sacrifice of Jesus, 
even before creation began, Jesus was sacrificed. And so, th thank you, that, that was, that's exactly the point, that, that God, when he created, already knew exactly the way this was going to work out, and he had arranged with his son for the redemption of a people that would be his people out of the creation they were going, that they had not yet made. Now, how do we talk about not yet in terms of eternity? We don't. We look at it humanly in terms of not yet. And the Bible does accommodate itself to us that way. It says, before the foundation of the world, Christ was, was sacrificed, crucified. A covenant was a specific form of, maybe Bob has this here, I think he does. It's an agreement between two or more people, this is using John Owen, uh, to bring about a common goal. It is initiated by the greater power, all right? It, it can only be done by the greater with the lesser. Now, they're, they're both parties to it, and it could even be suggested by the lesser to the greater, but you can't force a greater into a covenant. So there is a principle, as John Owen speaks of it, engager, and he describes what is necessary to accomplish the covenant, what the goal of the covenant is. And that principal engager makes promises that are necessary to support the work that the lessers will be doing on the way to fulfilling the covenant. The lessers, the ones who are the junior partners in the covenant, uh, undertake the works, and they say, we will carry this out, we will do it. They both commit themselves to that end, and, and then the covenant is completed when the, when the end that is foreseen is achieved, okay? Now, this is an, an, a really old description of covenant, but what we know of covenants today and have learned, which was available then and is clear, is that Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus' blood is the blood of the covenant, right? Why would the covenant need blood? Well, it's because in the ancient Near East, covenants were a common form of treaty or of, of contract between a, a greater and a lesser, a, a vassal and a king, you know? And... Uh, the suzerain, the Lord, would describe to the vassal what was required, and then they'd enter a covenant. And in the making of a covenant, there was always the shedding of blood. There had to be the shedding of blood. Um, because what was said is by the, the sovereign, the suzerain, the, the, the Lord, is you do this, do this, do this, I will do this. The other party comes in and says, yes, I agree, I will do this and this if you do this. And then to actually enact the covenant, there, would, there was necessary for there to be the cutting apart of an animal signaling, so be it done to me if I fail in this. So you remember when God makes his covenant with Abraham, it's in, in, in the dark, there's a fire, there's smoke pots, and, God, and, and there are these animals, these birds and animals laid out, cut apart on the ground. Those are the, that is the blood of God's covenant with Abraham, signaling a greater need for blood if this covenant is not fulfilled, the agreement of both parties. So when Jesus is crucified before the foundation of the world, 
What it implies is that God had made a covenant that he knew would need to be paid before man was even created because the blood of the covenant was already shed on behalf of the sinful men. Am I making sense? And so it's called the covenant of redemption. And it was a covenant that was made entirely within the Trinity, in the Godhead, before anything was created, that Jesus would die, all right? That is the, the first covenant. And every covenant that comes after that is, in a sense, a reflection of that great covenant, okay? <coughs> Let me continue here. Uh, Bereath occurs 275 times. You're going to find it frequently. Abraham makes a covenant uh, with, with Abimelech. Isaac makes a covenant with Abimelech. Um, it's, it's just a common, common way of people agreeing on things in the Old Testament. And it occurs diateke uh, in, in the New Testament 33 times. Um, there's always a blood. Uh, this is the story of Abraham. God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought all these to him, cut them in two, laid them in half opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds. And birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, this is, an, I mean, this is, a, this is one of those scenes in the Bible that you think, right? The birds of prey coming down, it reminds you of Saul's daughter right, with her sons that were put to death because of the sin against the Gibeonites and her driving the birds. It's just an awful image. Deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. This covenant includes slavery. God knows what's going to happen. But I will also judge a nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. This is recorded so that the people in their slavery will know that this was part of the covenant. There is no part of our lives when we're children of God that is not included in his covenant with us. And there will be hard parts of this covenant. I will judge the nation whom they will serve. Afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the wrongdoing of the Amorite is not yet complete. And so God says, this is not, it's not time yet. The sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanites is not yet complete. And so you're not going to get this land yet. There's going to be two patriarchs to follow you, and we know that. And there's going to be 400 years, and then there's going to be the 40 years of the Exodus. So it's going to be 500, 600 years before this happens. But they will come back to this land. And the wrongdoing, the sin of the Amorites, will be complete. Now it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. Behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. Well, God has made... All of this was foreseen in the covenant of redemption. Jesus was crucified. That means that Jesus was the son of David before David was ever created. All these things were foreseen 
All this was part of God's plan in that covenant. So we have a series of covenants, and I, <clears throat> I'm going to walk you through them in your, in your sheet. The covenant of redemption, the most significant one. The universal covenant, this is one that Bob included, but it's not one I'm entirely familiar with. It's not one that's talked about as much, um, but it does, it does make sense that God has created the world and he has expectations of everything in the world. And that um, the, the co covenant that's called the Edenic covenant, sometimes it's called, it's Roman numeral three, the covenant of works is an interesting one. As Sarah French brought it to our attention, it's taught, but the characteristic features of a covenant are kind of assumed rather than in evidence. Am I making sense? There is no sacrifice to set it up. It may be presumed that the sacrifice of Christ one day is part of this because of um, it. But certainly there's death in consequence. There's reward in death, okay? Reward and punishment. Every covenant has rewards and punishments. And it's obvious that the reward was do this and live uh, fail to obey me and you will die. In the day you do thereof, you will certainly die. And so there's a reward, there's a punishment. Is there an agreement? Well, it's presumed. Is there a sacrifice that sets it apart and starts it? Again, that's not an evidence. I'm not entirely a fan of the covenant of works. Um, it's kind of a thing that's needed for covenant theology to work. You know, it's one of those things that have to be there because you have to come from the covenant of works to the covenants of grace and say, ah, but then having sinned, God enters grace in. Um, there are a number of Reformed people who question whether there was anything that was not of grace. The great distinction between the covenant of works and the covenants that follow, according to the covenant theologians, is that all the covenants that follow require faith rather than obedience, okay? And so they say those are grace because it's not what you do. It's, it's your faith in God. But uh, I, I, it, it seems to me and to many people that, that the sin, including Calvin, the sin of Adam began before he actually took the fruit. And that there was sin and evil, there was something there, but the law was not broken, but that they had already come not to believe God. And so the very first step into sin was not to believe, it was a denial of faith. And so to separate the first covenant as being simply works and all the rest faith, I'm not sure that's, I don't like that. I, I, I think that faith was what Adam was deficient in and Eve, and thus they sinned. But um, the... So that's the covenant of works, the, the Edenic covenant. There's the covenant that's made with Adam. And where would the bloodshed take place with Adam after the fall? Do you know the covenant I'm speaking about? It's the promise, the, the, what's called the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. Euangelion is Greek for gospel, good news. Proto is first, first gospel. Do you know where the first gospel appears? Yes, and what does it say? 
Yes. Okay, and where would the people say that the, the actual um, shedding of blood took place for that covenant? Can you think? The God killing the animals to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, right? And so uh, that's the first covenant, the, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic was with Noah after the fall saying, I'll never again and again, it was sacrifice. The Abrahamic, we just read, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses, which was, was um, the covenant that was epitomized in, well, what was the, the, the symbol of the covenant in, with Moses? What? The Ten Commandments, yeah, with the, the ten words. Now, those ten words covered many things like the Passover. There were the ceremonies that pointed to Jesus in so many ways that the covenant was reflected. But um, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Now, um, let me move us on here. These are famous covenant theologians. The guys on the right are, are theologians at the school of Princeton Seminary, which was for many years a great, great seminary. Um, I think I'm going to draw us to conclusion now, but uh, you've missed out on Bob doing, Bob was having trouble reading and, 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 and uh, during the last time that we were together. And I said, oh, Bob, it's in your mind. You know, when we were together, well, yeah, in a sense it was. But um, I didn't believe him, you know. I was saying, oh, come on, man. I have trouble with words, too, at my age. Uh, but it's sort of poignant now to think how Bob ended this, and I can't do it the way Bob did it. But the, when he taught this the first time, none of you have been through this before, have you? He came to the end, and uh, let me see if I can find it. He came to the end of the class, and he, um, he had this, he had this, he had Debbie stand up with her phone. And she played the, a song um, from Condi Music Ministries with the, that man, Jamie Rankin, on the piano, and Stephen Condi, that man, Singing and Robert Dunlop, who's not in the picture, playing what the horn that'd be the French horn. And uh, it's the song that I think this guy wrote. And it, it goes and it just follows the passage that says, Fear not, for I am with you, fear not, for I am your God. And it's beautiful, you know. So Debbie stood here and hold it, and Bob just stood here and he sort of got teary eyed like he does. And and it was really moving. But it's especially moving today, knowing that Bob was, even then, probably had the cancer, you know? And he's saying, what he was saying is, God knows your life. God has arranged it all before time ever began, and God is faithful. I can't play it for you. I don't have the album. And Bob didn't send it over. He sent me all the rest of his stuff, but he didn't send me that. And it's probably good, because I don't want to try and compete with Bob on that. It was a beautiful way to end that first week. And... Uh, so, thank you for your patience. I hope that God uses this time that we're together. And Isaac, would you close us in prayer? Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. 
And remember, this is truth to live by.